Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto, Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash MilkStreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MilkStreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're learning about all things trendy in the food world. New York Times correspondent Kim Severson talks the future of food, including delivery robots, the decline of the children's menu, and why many consumers are replacing alcohol with CBD. We're in this period where people are really into a new sobriety. They're really into being more mindful about the alcohol they consume, particularly um, the kids today. However, at the same time, there's an incredible amount of anxiety in the country right now, and I think also there's this sense of we need to soothe ourselves. Also coming up, Grant Barron and Martha Barnett of Away With Words discuss food names that have a secret, and we transform the classic pineapple upside-down cake. But first up today, we're chatting with Fuchsia Dunlop. Her new book is called The Food of Sichuan. Fuchsia, welcome to Milk Street. Hi. You know... I always want to tell a little story about you. When you were at Milk Street a few months ago, 
we started talking about the textures, which are so important in Chinese cooking. And you, you talked about uh, your first days in Chengdu and how it took you a while to get used to it. But when I kept asking you about the slippery bits or the gnarly bits or the chewy bits, your eyes lit up and you love those textures. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Because you you made a huge transition from the beginning to now to really appreciating texture. Well, I think it just happened through constant exposure, really, because when I went to live in Chengdu, the capital of Sichuan, in 1994, I was like any other foreigner in that, although I tasted a lot of different foreign cuisines. I was not used to eating slithery, gristly, <laughs> you know, glutinous foods. And um, Chinese friends were always ordering that sort of food for me. And I would politely eat these things without really any pleasure. But over the years, I think being in the company of people who really love eating and having a generally wonderful experience of Chinese and Sichuanese food, I guess I just started to appreciate them. And I came to realize that if you can open your mind and your palate to the pleasures of texture, it's like opening a door to another dimension of gastronomy, and it just multiplies the possibility of pleasure. I think you wrote about Sichuanese cooking. I I love this quote. The most salient characteristics of Sichuanese cooking is its audacious combinations of different flavors in a single dish and a multitude of flavors within a meal. Could you just talk about that? Yes, absolutely. And it does play you like a piece of music. The whole point of a good meal is that it's not just sort of wham-bam, hot and spicy. If you have a spicy dish, you also have a very delicate, gentle soup. If you have something that's very sweet and sour, then you'll probably have something that's light and savoury. And so with a Citroenese meal, it just takes you on a kind of journey and you have these very stimulating tastes and then you have something relaxing and cleansing and then you go into a stronger flavor again and that's one of the reasons why Sichuanese food never becomes tiring and it's also one of the reasons why Sichuanese food I think it's regarded as the people's food the common people's food because it doesn't have to be about really expensive ingredients there are dishes in Sichuan like my old favorite fish fragrant eggplant which is just a cheap everyday dish and it's so delicious and dry fried beans <laughs> so you get all these really simple cheap everyday dishes that anyone can afford and they are dramatic and exciting uh, the concept of fragrance is not one that's built into the American repertoire, at least the classic American repertoire, really. And you talk about fragrance a lot in this book. Could you just talk about what what is fragrance in Sichuan cooking? What does it mean? Um, well, fragrance is a rather lovely word in Chinese. And the same word actually was used for joysticks, for incense, and had a sort of spiritual connotation in the past. But it refers to the aromas of food and often to the flavors of food as awakened in the oil of the wok or by roasting as well. For example, roast duck is regarded as very xiang, very fragrant because of that lovely, roasty, slightly caramelized, lacquered flavor of the skin. Fragrance is also used for the smells that you awaken in ingredients like ginger, garlic and scallion or chili bean paste when you sizzle them in oil in a wok and you kind of coax out all their volatile flavours and your kitchen just fills with fragrance. And I always sort of encourage people when they're cooking to use their noses (laughs) because that's what will tell you when you've sizzled the garlic just enough to bring out that sweetness or when you've sizzled the chili bean paste to the oil is red and smells wonderfully savory. You know, I remember, I guess it's been three years now since we came to your place in East London and you made us an impromptu lunch, which was the best impromptu lunch I ever had in my life. Um, and, and, I, and I noticed it was a pork dish with quite a lot of oil on the walk. And one of the crew mentioned something about it. And you just looked at him and said, well, you don't eat all that oil. That's just the cooking medium. It stays in the wok or on your plate. You don't actually consume it. But oil is is so important. Could you talk about oil and how much oil and, and how 
how you think or Sichuan Cook thinks about oil? Well, the first thing is that oil is a vehicle for flavor. And in a lot of Sichuanese dishes, you're using it to carry the taste of chilies, of Sichuan pepper, of garlic, of all these wonderful aromatic seasonings. And so it's essential from a flavor point of view. The other point is that in China, you're normally using chopsticks to eat. And certainly at most casual meals, you're using chopsticks to take morsels of food from dishes in the center of the table. So... A dish may appear with what looks like a lot of oil, but you will be picking up the food from the oil just with enough to carry that flavor and then eating it over your rice bowl without the oil. So that's one point. And actually, a couple of Chinese chef friends of mine, they were having a good laugh with me because they were saying, you know, American chefs always tell us we use so much oil. And this American chef the other day, he made us some mashed potato and he put half a stick of butter into it. We were expected to eat it. <laughs> and they couldn't believe that they were actually going to swallow all this butter, you know, because in China, you'd leave it on the plate. In Food of Sichuan, you also mentioned there are 56 different cooking methods. Could you just talk about a few of them? There's dew cooking, simmering gently in liquid to absorb flavors. I love that. Are there two or three other uh, cooking techniques we might be less familiar with here that you really love? So there are many different cooking methods all over China, and some of them are quite regional. And one, for example, that is particularly important in Sichuanese cooking is called ganshao. So shao is a method which is usually translated as braising, which is just cooking food in a bit of water, usually with some stir-fried aromatics as a base. But dry shao um, is when you sizzle some aromatics in oil, you add some liquid to make a sauce, and then you put your main ingredient, perhaps a fish or something, into that sauce. And then you simmer it and you let the salt, the flavors of the sauce go into your fish. And then instead of um, thickening the sauce with a bit of starch, which is one way of making a Chinese sauce, you actually carry on cooking until almost all the water has evaporated. So all the flavors go into your fish and the remains of the sauce and the aromatics sort of stick to it in a wonderful, clingy, delicious sauce, a, you know, scanty sauce. And then you have a little pool of fragrant oil around it. So Sichuanese dry braised fish is truly a thing of beauty. It's so delicious. <laughs> and that's a, a special Sichuanese cooking method. You're, you're getting excited again. <laughs> <laughs> Just like when I asked you about those slippery bits, I can tell you're smiling. Um, Fuchsia Dunlop, uh, a real pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thank you. Thanks very much. That was Fuchsia Dunlop, author of The Food of Sichuan. Right now, Sarah Moult and I are ready to solve your culinary mysteries. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also the author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, before we take some calls, I have a question for you. Yes. You know, there are very few classic French restaurants left. I think La Grande is still there. I'm talking about New York. And you worked at La Tulipe. Do you have a space in your heart, in your soul, for those classic French restaurants? And if so, do you still go to them? You know, not the classic, the bistros. Oh. Just love the bistros. You know, moule, marinière, you know, steak frites, duck confit, you know, the more rustic stuff, you know, without all the extra, extra sauces that I just can't get enough of still. Okay. I, <laughs> I think I knew the answer to that. Let's open up the phone lines. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Sarah from San Diego. Hi, Sarah. How can we help you today? Well, my question is about choosing butter, and specifically for baking pie. I like to make things that often don't turn out, and pie is one of them. And I have a friend who's a very experienced baker, and she says she uses French butter, and I looked up Stella Parks and Dory Greenspan's recommendations, and they call for unsalted butter. But when I'm at the store, I see so many choices for baking a pie. What matters here? Well, you'd probably be fine with any one of the butters. Uh, the difference between the European style and the American is the butterfat content. It's higher in the European style. So there's more fat in the butter. But what that also means is there's less moisture. 
and that won't affect the pies because you're going to be, you know, making the pie and touching uh-huh. the pie and figuring out how much liquid anyway. So you can adjust uh-huh. accordingly. Advice I would give you on pie crust. I think that you do want to coat the flour with fat more than most recipes lead you to believe. I would go towards a shorter crust, which means don't make the butter so cold. Cut it in more with the flour. Make sure there's enough water in the dough to roll out easily and make sure you cut the butter in enough so the flour is well coated and that'll give you Uh a, a safe pastry. I agree with Sarah that the higher fat content European butters in general are better. Last comment is I find salted butter gives you a better flavor than just adding the salt separately. Can I just very quickly give you my recipe for pastry dough that I just made three times last week? To great, I, I, I would yes. to great acclaim. It's 180 grams of all-purpose flour to 10 wow. tablespoons of butter, which is a fairly high ratio of butter. Wow. I cut the butter like in half, you know, lengthwise or even in quarters lengthwise and then into chunks. I don't let it be cold, cold, cold. I agree with Chris about that. It's easier mm. to mix it in. I do leave pea-sized chunks. I throw in the water. It's anywhere from two to six tablespoons ice water. Last week, it was five tablespoons, five and a half. So you just have to add the flour, start with three tablespoons, and then see if if you can grab it and will stay together. But if it still seems quite sandy around the edges, add a little more, then throw it on the counter, big mess, and smear it with the palm of your hand. Oh, that's the old French method. It's called fressage. Fressage. And smear it from one end of the counter to the other. Then scrape it up with a scraper, you know, bench scraper, and do it again. Mm -hmm. And then scrape it up. And if it looks good at that point, just shape it and put it in the fridge. That's a good method. Let it chill. And then, you know, take it out. You're going to need to let it cool enough so you can bang it into a round and then roll it in a round. That higher percentage of butter, the warmer temperature, you need the right amount of water, the more you do it, the better you'll get. I use unsalted butter. I'm not against salted. I add some salt to my dough, so you know I'm not going to argue with Chris about that. But it works every time. So 180 grams of flour and 10 tablespoons of butter, anywhere from 2 to 6 tablespoons of ice water. Okay, well, I'm going to go home and make pie. And in closing, I would like to say that Sarah uses a technique that has a French name. <laughs> ah, there you go. I can't help it, darling. <laughs> anyway, anyway that's, a, Sarah, that's a great good recipe. Luck. Take yes. care. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you. This was a lot of fun for me. For us, us too. too. <laughs> bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who am I talking to? Hi, this is Jay from Cambridge, Massachusetts. How you doing? Okay. And how can we help you today? I like to make popcorn, and uh, I, you know, I was I was using uh, microwave and all that, and um. I try to get away from that and go back to making it myself. And I seem to remember that when I would make it myself on the stovetop years ago, it would come out kind of fluffy and nice the way that most of us like it. But I find that now, uh, no matter what I do, it always seems to come out kind of tough, you know, smaller kernels, I guess you call it, and uh, chewier. And I've tried different oils and different amounts of oil, and I don't know what I might be doing wrong. I usually go with a ratio of a third of a cup of popcorn to a tablespoon of oil. And I like to use grapeseed oil. That's my favorite. So at any rate, what I'll do is I'll, over medium-high heat, I'll heat up that one tablespoon of oil. And then I'll throw in a couple of kernels. And uh, once they, you know, start popping, then you know the heat's right. You throw in the rest of the third of a cup, and then you put on a lid slightly ajar, which allows some of the steam to come out. And, you know, you just shake it a little bit, and you wait until the popping noises slow down, and then you're good to go. And I found that works consistently. But I, I wonder, though, if he his description sounds like maybe the oil was not hot enough, because you said the kernels were tough and not as large as usual when they were popped? Yes. Uh, I do. Actually, the um, method that Sarah just described, I've tried many, many times. When I haven't done as much, maybe, is to have the top a little... More open to let, yeah, to let the uh, steam out. Right. And are you putting this over medium-high heat? Yes. Yeah. Maybe this is actually the one thing the microwave excels at is popping popcorn because those silly silicone, you know, things you throw in the microwave, they actually do work pretty well. So you you, you just want to get back, I understand this, to a more rough-and-tumble, old-fashioned method. You don't want to use the microwave on philosophical grounds. 
Um, yeah, well, also there's supposed to be the health issue yeah. with um, the uh, the bags, the microwave bags, but right. you can put it into one of those popcorn makers. Is right. that what you were talking yeah, about? Yeah, those silicone popcorn makers, which I abhor the concept, but we've tried them and they work. Oh, really? Yeah, they actually do a really good job. So may- maybe if you don't mind philosophically using a microwave for popping popcorn, and maybe it's a better way of doing it. Huh. Yeah. I mean, oh, great. Oh, yeah. Instead of using hot oil, you're using the microwaves, and maybe that gives you fluffier, more consistent popcorn. I've always liked the popcorn I made the way I just said, but maybe I don't know what really fluffy popcorn's like. So, uh, well, <laughs> this is a life changing phone call, Sarah. I know, really. Get ready. I think I'm going to take maybe your advice about looking into one of those uh, microwave. They don't cost poppers. much, and I just give it right. a shot. Maybe the microwave is I, it's the I way to go. I hate to say it. But maybe that's the way to go. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, thank you so much. It's great. Yeah. All right, really Jay. Nice Thanks, Jay. To you and thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. This is Most of Your Radio. If you have a cooking question, Sarah and I are here to help. Give us a ring anytime. 855 426 9843. One more time. 855 426 9843. Or email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Brooke Anderson. Hi, Brooke. Where are you calling from? I grew up in St. Louis and have lived in Boston for about 20 years and love using my mother's apple pie recipe, but have had trouble finding the apples in New England that we use growing up in St. Louis, which are Jonathan apples. Okay. What did you like about the Jonathan apples? I think there was a tartness to it right. and the, maybe a crispier texture. And when I've substituted other apples locally, sometimes I hit it right, and other times it's a little too mushy, maybe a little too sweet. It just doesn't have the right flavor and texture. I totally agree. I I think all, nothing like a blanket statement, all modern hybrids of apples are awful. They're too (laughs) sweet, and they're not crisp, and, and you're absolutely right. They don't have enough apple flavor. They're just sweet. And the older apples, Rhode Island Greenings, Macallan, Northern Spy, Cortland, they were more savory, less sweet, and they had depth of flavor, and they were spicier and more interesting. I'm totally with you. I think I would just go get the ones I just mentioned. Cortland is fairly available. McCowan, M-A-C-O-U-N, is one of my favorites. That's funny. I thought that was McCoon. I think it's McCowan. Someone corrected me once. Northern Spy. (laughs) Try to get Rhode Island Greening if you can get any of those. And the place to get those is if you have an orchard nearby. Sometimes they grow the older varieties. I would say all of the Pink Lady, John of Gold. Uh, Golden Delicious is what the French use a lot, which mm. I hate. It cooks up so nice. Yeah, it's mealy and sweet. No, raw, it's terrible. <laughs> cooked, it's fantastic. I've had it cooked. However, I always mix apples in my yes, pies. Yes, well, that's what they I used to do. And I throw in some um, yes. Granny Smiths because yeah. they're always going to give you that tartness. Yeah, that's good. And if you want, uh, generally don't want an apple that falls apart, but sometimes it's nice to throw in a few Macintosh because they mush up and they sort of bind uh, the a whole Macintosh thing. A Macintosh has great flavor. Yeah. It just, But it mushes up. And uh, I also recommend refrigerating apples. Sometimes people don't. You know, one time well, they we have did, to be refrigerated. Yeah. Well, I know, but a lot of people think they don't because they don't really spoil. But what happens is they become mealy. I think the formula is one day in room temperature is equal to a week in the fridge. They should be at thirty-three degrees. The only other thing I suggest, I agree with Sarah. Try different varieties together. I have an yeah. orchard near my farm in uh, in Saratoga Springs, New York. And they grow Uh a lot of old, old varieties. So if you find an apple with a weird name, just go buy a bunch of those and then mix them. And (laughs) some some of the times they're peppery or they're savory. They're just lovely. And so mix and match and have a good time. Yeah. That's great. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brooke. Brooke. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with Kim Severson about food predictions for 2020 and beyond. That and more after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. 
Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Year Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with New York Times food correspondent Kim Severson about her article, What Will We Eat in 2020? Something toasted, something blue. Kim Severson, welcome back to Milk Street. It is always a pleasure, Chris. How are you? I'm good. So you wrote a piece for the New York Times talking about food trends. And so the question is, what did you find? Well, I've come to be the person at the Times, apparently, because I've been there forever, to kind of look back on the year and look forward. And I, I actually enjoy drilling down and trying to figure out out of the dozens and dozens and dozens of trend forecasts and predictions and see what's real and what isn't real. And, and so I went through my grand list and uh, I talked to a lot of uh, social science forecasters and industry forecasters and uh, writers and looked around and came up with what we thought 
was ahead for us in 2020. You actually did what the New York Times does so well, which you actually did some homework on this. Right. Well, you know, it's um, these things are, are data and science to a degree. Some of it is is intuitive. But then there are these deeper trends and you can see, you know, how uh, fermentation, for example, you know, it, it takes gut health. It takes sort of a rise in a popularity of Korean food, for example, and kimchi. And you have a little bit of the DIY ethos that came into to kombucha's rise and uh, preserving methods. So all of these things kind of, you can sort of see them popping up as little blips on the on the horizon and taken together, you come to a place where you're like, oh, fermentation. But it's a long trend line, right? So right. fermentations, people start talking about it in 2014, 15. Here in 2020, now you have 72 brands of kombucha on the shelves at Whole Foods. So it's kind of interesting to watch the trends move through time like that. Let's dive down into some of the things that I, I really found interesting in this piece. You talk about mood food, calming beverages, et cetera. Let's talk about that. It's very interesting. I mean, this is a place where you can really see uh, social and cultural trends coming in. So we're in this period where people are really into being more mindful about the alcohol uh, they consume, particularly um, the kids today. So light alcohol drinks, no alcohol drinks are are quite popular. However, at the same time, there's an incredible amount of anxiety in the country right now. And I think there's this sense of we need to soothe ourselves. And this idea, uh, you know, you're also seeing at the same time, CBD and hemp production is about to explode. I think every food company that's worth its right. stock prices, trying to figure out how to, uh, waiting for the legislation to even out so they can make CBD products. But we want to feel better somehow. You also mentioned, I love this, this could be the year the children's menu finally dies. I, I never thought of that. No, oh, that's absolutely true. And I, I was uh, looking back and you have, you know, millennials are right in the middle of their big child producing years right now. And millennials were, many ways the the most food forward generation that we've known in terms of sophistication and so the idea of just chicken nuggets and a bowl of butter noodles as the kids menu is very uh, I think very dated now right. and we're going to see healthier fresher more interesting kids menus now granted this all seems good in theory but if you have a kid who really will only eat quesadillas for a year and a half of their life as many people do I think I think we're still going to have to have something for that uh uh, segment of child. But I think it's almost insulting now if you go into a restaurant and you see a kid's menu and it has not very good processed stuff. Pasta with butter and cheese. Right, right. Um, you know, and I, the idea of like, you know, maybe you'll have little batons of, of salmon instead of fish sticks or kinds of pasta that have, you know, broccoli rabe in it instead of just butter and parm. For my three-year-old, I like the batons of salmon, please. Yes, there we are. Right, exactly. So what's your top country in terms of influence on America? Well, Japan, uh, we declared Japan was the country of the year for a couple of reasons. Um, people are getting sort of beyond just this notion of ramen and sushi. So I think you have uh, chefs who maybe three or four years ago were particularly obsessed with traveling to Tokyo. And you saw a lot of Instagram feeds with some of the more whimsical, you know, fish-shaped ice cream cones and right. souffle pancakes and things. So you sort of all these things come, came together to make Japan seem like um, a place that would have some real serious culinary impact, cultural impact, but also it's super fun in the Instagram era. So we're <laughs> calling it for Japan. So we're all familiar with artificial intelligence in the restaurant industry, for example. But any new technologies that really stand out? What's really interesting is um, bot delivery, which is being tested in several cities. And there are these little, um, uh, uh, they just like little, like, you know, they'll hold 10 or 14 pizzas in an order and they are self-driving and they hmm. will just go around in neighborhoods and you will walk out, put in whatever little access code they give you and your pizza will pop up and you'll take it back to your house. So, hmm. so I think we're seeing that. We're also seeing a lot of, um, and I'm really interested in, uh, food supply safety and where, you know, that romaine lettuce that got infected with E. coli, you can figure out exactly where it went, where it went through and what city it ended up in and which grocery store it was sold at and probably which customer. So I think that's going to be a fascinating area to watch. 
Which of the things we've talked about you think are going to be really transformative going forward? I'm very interested in this chapter of vegetarianism and veganism and eating for the planet. The urgency of climate change right now and the move for even mainstream farmers, soybean farmers, to think about regenerative agriculture. That's like, I think that could be really transformative and could change how we eat. So I, uh, the idea of, of eating to save the planet, now whether or not that means we're all going to be eating impossible burgers, which I'm predicting right now are going to fall off because it's not a particularly healthy thing to eat and you know, impossible burgers are not going to save the planet. I will just say that boldly and stand by it. But I think this notion that we really need to think deeply about how our food is grown and what we're choosing to eat, it's going to become sort of second nature to the generation of eaters who are coming up right now and to farmers. So how does this work? Is this as simple as the public eventually gains enough momentum on a social point of view about food? And that trickles up because companies realize they can make money serving the new uh, tastes of American diners. Uh, Or is there something else going on that makes these trends turn into real businesses? I think they're both. uh, I always use the example of roasted garlic and mashed potatoes, right? So there were some chefs in the early 90s who had this idea of roasting garlic and putting them in mashed potatoes on their restaurants in San Francisco. So pretty soon garlic roasted mashed potatoes are everywhere and eventually they end up maybe a decade later on uh, Boston market menus and garlic. And now you really don't see garlic roasted potatoes around that much. But the idea was that people were taking old fashioned American meat and potatoes dishes and trying to you know, upgrade them some way because culturally we were upgrading our food all over the place in the 90s, right? So some of those are just money makers. Haagen-Dazs ice cream decided they were going to promote their five ingredients on a label because all the nutritionists were saying if the label's full of additives and is really long, don't buy it. And Haagen-Dazs cleverly said, we're going to say we're only five ingredients. And that was, that was maybe 10 years ago that happened. Mm. So is that a long term? Have we turned the corner on the 70s, 80s processed food world, maybe. Um, But banana flour and Impossible Burgers, I'm not sure are going to take off. And I also don't think we're ever going to be eating insects with any enthusiasm. So there you go. Last question. Mint chocolate chip with pureed spinach inside. Help me out here. I I find this is... uh, I just couldn't believe people are still trying to hide vegetables from children. (laughs) Right. that was a thing. I think you remember Jerry Seinfeld's wife had a famous yep. cookbook out cookbook. to sneak, you know, yeah, mash the cauliflower into the potatoes. Right. Uh, but now this is, uh, people, they still want to make money off of this. So um, the idea is that you could hide carrots in the chocolate ice cream and you would do pureed spinach in the mint chocolate chip, vanilla with hidden zucchini, cotton candy ice cream with beets. Uh, I <laughs> am giving it a big no. Well, as the old song goes, a change is going to come, but some things stay the same, right? God bless. Kim Severson, always a pleasure. Please come back soon. Oh, it's always a pleasure for me, and I can't wait to see if we were right or wrong next year. That was Kim Severson. She's a food correspondent for The New York Times. Her article is entitled, What Will We Eat in 2020? Something Toasted, Something Blue. You know, predicting the future is not really a science. It's more of a guessing game. Here are a few predictions that did not work out. 1916, cinema is a little more than a fad. 1946, television won't last because people will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box. 1977, there is no reason for any individual to have a computer in his home. In 1995, Newsweek declared, no online database will replace your daily newspaper. If, however, one views predictions as entertainment, then by all means enjoy them along with bone broth, oatmeal, pineapple buns, coconut yogurt, and squid ink that experts predict will be on the menu in the coming 12 months. Oh, and by the way, bon appetit. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, pineapple upside-down cornmeal cake. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. So upside-down cakes often are sort of like box cake mixes with too much sugar on them. Uh, But we do know a baker in Portland, Maine, of the Tandem Bakery. Her name is Brianna Holt. 
and she takes American classics and sort of makes grown-up versions of them. And uh, she has a pineapple upside-down cake we really liked, so we started there. That's right, Chris. So her version feels like a traditional pineapple upside-down cake, but she uses some non-traditional ingredients to make it a little more sophisticated. So the method is pretty much the same. It's a creamed butter cake, but she's using a little bit of cornmeal, which adds some texture and some flavor. And then in with the wet ingredients, she's adding whole milk ricotta cheese, which adds some moisture but keeps the cake really nice and light. And then there's a little bit of buttermilk in there as well to balance out the sweetness of that pineapple. So it has nothing to do with a traditional recipe. Well, it looks the same. It looks the same. Yeah, it still feels like a pineapple upside down cake, but it tastes like something much, much better. Are we using pineapple from the can? Certainly not. Oh, good. Fresh pineapple has just much, much better flavor, but it also has the ability to cut it into the size you want. The kind that comes in the can is really, really thick, never gets cooked through the way we want, so we can slice ours a little bit thinner. Is this a, a one-bowl cake? Are you creaming butter? What's the method? Yeah, it's a creamed butter cake, so creaming butter and sugar, adding wet, and then adding dry ingredients. So like a tart tatin, do you actually pre-cook the pineapple? We do, and we're actually pre-cooking it twice. We tried to just throw everything into the pan, but we found that that created sort of a gummy layer in between the pineapple and the cake. So we pre-cook it on the stovetop to caramelize it with some brown sugar, and then we actually put it in the cake pan in the oven and let that cook for five to ten minutes. What that did was got the pineapple really nice and hot so that when we add the batter, it immediately starts to cook, so you eliminated that kind of gummy layer. So inspired by Tandon Bakery in Portland, Maine, a pineapple upside-down cornmeal ricotta cake, everything in there, uh, and tastes a lot better than something out of a box. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for pineapple upside down cornmeal cake at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we find out from Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett if German chocolate cake is really from Germany. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moult and I will be taking a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Charlotte from Burbank, California. Hi, Charlotte. Uh, what can we do for you today? Well, I have been intrigued lately by the all that I've been reading about Sichuan peppercorns and the numbing sensation that they can give to dishes. So I ordered some a while ago from Amazon, and frankly, they like the numbing sensation was great, and I was very interested in that, but they imparted a really bad, gritty texture in the dish, and I was wondering if I was supposed to prep them in some way or filter that out or do something else. Well, uh, let me start by saying that Sichuan peppercorns are not related to other peppercorns, black and white, and they're produced from the husks of uh, two species of prickly ash shrubs. You know, I always wonder who was the first person to think, geez, I'd like to, you know, harvest that and put it into a dish, you know. Right. Who's the same person who ate the first oyster? At any rate, the point is that when you buy them whole, sometimes there might be twigs and, you know, depending on where it came from or how clean it was. But then uh, it sounds like, Charlotte, you're not toasting them or grinding them, correct? Well, I think I, this was a while ago, but I think I, you know, I made sure they looked okay. And then I put them in my mortar and pestle and just kind of pounded them for a little bit and then threw them right into whatever noodle thing I was making. Let's go back to her first statement. She bought them from Amazon. Yeah. My guess is you're not buying maybe the highest highest quality. quality. Um, Right. And I could give you some suggestions. Burlap and Barrel, we have an online store and we work with them. They're very high quality. I would get the best quality because you're probably getting stuff in that jar that you don't love, and sift that stuff out, too, before Mm -hmm. you put it in the mortar and pestle uh, as well. So it just sounds to me like maybe you didn't get the best quality to start with, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree, but I would also recommend toasting them in a dry pan because until you can smell them and then get them right out of the pan, but that will really make them come alive and uh, be tasty. My food editor, Matt Card, also uses them a lot, and he often grinds them with salt or sugar, Mm-hmm. And he finds that gets it down to a finer yes. mix to uh, avoid the grittiness. And that's a good trick, too. So okay. if you're going to, like salt, for example, uh, grind it or put in a little coffee grinder, electric one, uh, you reserve for spices and grind it with coarse salt. And that All might right. also solve that problem. Yeah. Okay. But they are fun. I like but, them but a lot. Buy the good stuff. I mean, I won't give you the long speech, but the better spices are single source directly from the grower the lesser quality go through 10 or 12 hands, and they might be two years old by the time you buy them. So okay. this is one case where it doesn't cost much more to buy the good stuff. I'd buy the good stuff. Okay. Thank you so much. Charlotte, uh, Charlotte thanks for calling. Thank you. Okay. okay. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Have a cooking question? Sarah and I probably have an answer. Please give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855 855- Four two six nine eight four three, or email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Christy from Seattle. And how can we help you today? Well, I have a question about buttermilk. I used to buy the low-fat kind because that's what I saw in the stores. And lately, I've been buying a full-fat version made by a local dairy. It's great in some things, like biscuits, and it makes really great pancakes when I mix it half and half with milk. But when I use it in buttermilk cakes or cornbread, it doesn't work as well. I get an uneven rise, and the interior is overly wet, kind of gummy. And so my question is, when a recipe calls for buttermilk, do they assume that you're using the low-fat kind? Should I even be trying to bake with this full-fat buttermilk? The answer is yes and no. They are assuming you're buying cultured buttermilk, which is not real buttermilk, right? My mother grew up drinking buttermilk, which is what was left over after you made butter, which was very acidic and very thin. Very watery. Very watery. And then they started culturing it, which is what you get now. And that tends to be thin and low fat, which is what all the people writing cookbooks are using. So, I mean, there's there's Kate's uh, buttermilk. I can get that in New England which is great, but it's fuller fat. But I would say for consistency with the recipe, you're better off using the standard cultured low-fat buttermilk. Right, Sarah? right. because I thoroughly agree with Chris how odd. But <laughs> the thing is that when you have a higher fat content, then that influences the other right. fat that's already in the recipe and may throw it off balance, you know, because there's already going to be butter and some other form of fat in there. 
you said it worked in biscuits because biscuits are relatively lean, you know. Uh-huh. But you're right. If a cake, there's a higher fat content to start with, you're going to get into trouble. So the sad answer is use what the recipe developers use. Which is the low-fat stuff. low-fat stuff, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, that, that is a sad answer because it seems like such a quality product from a local dairy. Well, you know what you could do? If you have three or four baking recipes that use buttermilk and you want to support them, which I think is a great idea, you can just adjust the recipes if you want to take the time and just cut back the fat in the recipe and you could adapt it. But it, it would oh, just take a little okay. bit of work, but I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Okay. So now you're the recipe developer. You're right. All right, Christy. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thanks so much. Yep. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Aaron calling from Vermont with a cooking tip for meat substitutes. If you're trying to get more flavor and texture from them, uh, in addition to using whatever you know seasonings you might be using, try adding black pepper, white pepper, and cayenne. Also, it helps to kind of use only high heat so you get a sort of crispier edge and more texture. And if you're working with tofu, you can actually kind of freeze it beforehand to wick out a little extra moisture so you get a more tender and meat-like product. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett. They're the hosts of Away With Words, a public radio program about language. Grant, Martha, what's on your mind this week in the world of words? Well, this week we are thinking about words that are carrying passports from countries that they're not from, words that are hiding out under other identities, words that are pretending to be from places unknown. And one of these is a food that is very dear to my heart. This is the cake that I always had my mother make for me on my birthday. Oh, really? Yeah, German chocolate cake. This is the one thing that she would make for me. No kidding. And she didn't tell you that that name is a little bit misleading. No, I always thought it was from Germany, that the Germans ate this. Right, right. But you think about that delicious icing. You have the coconut, you have the pecans. I don't usually Mm. associate that with German tradition. They have coconuts in Germany, right? Um, No. (laughs) (laughs) Christopher, coconuts in Germany? No, but they may have had German chocolate in Germany. Well, actually, German chocolate was invented in this country. It was invented by a guy named Samuel German, oddly enough. And he was employed by a company that was founded by a guy named James Baker. And so the chocolate that he came up with was eventually known as Baker's, apostrophe S, German's, apostrophe S, sweet chocolate. And in the 1950s, there was a recipe that ran in a Texas newspaper that was for this particular kind of cake and called for this particular kind of chocolate. But it was reprinted in papers all across the country, and you can see how you might lose those apostrophe S's. And so that kind of chocolate became known as German chocolate. Well, it was Baker's German sweet chocolate. Mm -hmm. So it looked like it meant... German chocolate for bakers, like Mm -hmm. people who bake from (laughs) Germany. I did know that German chocolate was actually a brand of chocolate, but I had no idea that um, bakers was referring to the boss and Germans was the name of the guy. Uh, That's really interesting. Yeah, two eponyms right there in a row. Yeah, Dr. James Baker. And and, uh, Samuel German was employed by one of his descendants. I love that. German chocolate cake. That's that's a new one on me. That's, That's pretty good. So there's another one that we're thinking about here, too. This is Russian dressing. I don't usually eat dressing on my salads, but Russian dressing isn't Russian. No, it's not. No, it's not Russian at all. And I don't know about you, Christopher. Do you do Thousand Island? Do you use ranch? Do you use just a little vinaigrette? What do you put on your salad? Are you seriously asking me whether I go to the supermarket and buy bottled dressing? No, you make your my own. Salad. But what do you make? What do no. you put together? <laughs> well... Since founding Milk Street, I I have gotten so far beyond French dressing. So yeah. I'll throw everything, you know, I'll, I'll throw in fish sauce and lime juice maybe, oh, yes. or I'll do yeah. pomegranate molasses and a Reese in it. So I, I, I've, it's a whole wild world of uh, salad dressings right now. So you're driving at what I was getting at, which is if you look up all the different recipes for Russian dressing over, say, the last hundred years— 
you will find a wide variety of things that are called Russian dressing, and none of them are really Russian at all. None of them are from Russia. And the only thing that maybe means that they should be called Russian is that occasionally people said, ah, let's throw some beets in there. And occasionally somebody said, ah, put some caviar in there. And so there's a recipe from 1899 that says salt, pepper, onion juice, olive oil, Tabasco sauce, tarragon vinegar, and mayo. And that's their Russian dressing. And then there's one that apparently was so well-liked that they reprinted it several times in the Hartford Current. And this one is chopped beets, caviar, chives, green pepper, sweet pepper, tarragon vinegar again, two teaspoons chopped white and yolk of egg, three tablespoons each of chili sauce and mayo, and a bit of salt, pepper, and paprika. And so these are fairly substantially different recipes for Russian dressing. But again, from this country, not from Russia at all. I'm I'm shocked by two things. One is the use of caviar in a dressing, which I think is... Unless it was really cheap back then. Um, and tarragon vinegar, was that was that something you'd go out and buy in a store? I don't know. I, my suspicion is that you just would soak the tarragon in the vinegar for a while, and so some of the flavor would oh. infuse. And, you know, caviar wasn't always such a delicacy, or, or it wasn't always so exclusive in upstate New York. Sturgeon was once so plentiful that it used to be called Albany beef. And bartenders would put out a little dish of caviar for you to go with your drink. So, guys, is there anything that ties these together? Like the the color of the dressing is consistent? Is there anything that's consistent? I do find again and again that there's a a spicy element to it. You do find Tabasco or chili sauce or some other bite Mm. to it. You do often find that reddish or pink or salmon color to it when you're done, if you blend it properly. Well, maybe it's the color. It's the red communist flag, you know, maybe that's what it was. (laughs) It it could be. But it's 100 years of these recipes. And again, they're substantially different over the 100 years. Yeah. And anything that's a little bit different, you know, if you can jazz it up with a name, oh, this is Russian Yeah, you'll find that throughout the history of English where we'll just call it Dutch or French or Mm -hmm. Spanish or German just to make it sound foreign and exotic and feel special, even though it's absolutely American. Fanny Farmer did it too. She'd say a la Ren, you know, if she wanted right. to sex yes. up a sort of a boring American recipe, you know, in mm-hmm. the style of the queen or something. Exactly. Well, and think about French toast as well. I mean, there's actually a right. long history of cooking a dish like this to use up old ingredients. In fact, all the way back in ancient Rome, uh, there was a recipe in a book called Apicius, which was a collection of a lot of recipes uh, in the first century. And, and there was a recipe for something very, very similar that was covered with honey. And um, it's it's a way of using up old ingredients. You know, in, in fact, in French, of course, you don't call it French toast. It's pain perdu, which is lost bread. It's, it's that end of the baguette that you want to slice up and use because it's starting to get a little hard or stale. And I want to tell you one other really cool thing about what we call French toast because this one blew my mind. In parts of southern Illinois and central Illinois, some people call it blind fish. What? How weird is that? Really? I know, right? (laughs) Who wants blind fish on their (laughs) breakfast table? Why do they call it that? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> because in German, there, there are, of course, a lot of German settlements there. And in German, Blinde Fische is mock fish. And so it's, huh. you know, it's one of those ways of dressing up really humble ingredients. So a piece of bread can be cooked kind of like a very tender filet? Well, you know, it's sort of like Welsh rarebit, right? It's not really... <laughs> not meat at all. <laughs> yeah, or Welsh rabbit. I, I, I guess if you went to supper and someone said, we're having fish tonight, Blinda fish, and you ended up with French toast. <laughs> yeah, mock fish. Know. Maybe it's an upgrade. I don't know. By the way, in Spanish, French toast is sometimes known as torrija, which could translate as drunken bread, which I think is a fun name. <laughs> well, the Spanish French toast, which we've made at Milk Street, actually does have alcohol in it. Oh, uh, lovely. Oh. Well, you know that French toast in France used to have alcohol as well, right? It used to put um, sack in it, which is a kind of wine. Mm, and, sure. And the word sack comes from the French word for dry wine, which is sec. There you go. So yeah, blind fish and drunken bread. Sounds delicious. Just don't put any Russian dressing on it. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Grant Martha, thank you so much for being on Mill Street. Thank you. That was our pleasure. We'll talk to you next time. That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words.
That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, browse our online store, or order our latest cookbook, The New Rules, Recipes That Will Change the Way You Cook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsaba. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Claff. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubop Crew. Additional music by George Bernal Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.